Hey, thanks for downloading this week's podcast from Relevant Church. We are so thrilled and excited to see what God has planned for your life through this message. We know you're going to enjoy it. Sit back, relax. God bless. I want to kind of set the stage a little bit because uh, one of the things that has been interesting to me is that I sort of read the Beatitudes a little differently than Pastor Jonathan does, which isn't a bad thing. It's actually, I think it's sort of um, looking at the same coin from maybe the other side. So I want to sort of back up a little bit and talk about what I think is what the Beatitudes are all about a little bit in terms of the Gospel of Matthew. Has anybody ever watched the presidential inaugural address? Sometimes. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's sort of this big moment. It's the first time that the president gets to address his country as the president. And let's say we'll have a candidate. We'll name him Bob just for, you know, the heck of it. Phil? Bill. 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 We'll call him Bill. Presidential Bill. <laughs> <laughs> so a couple years before the inauguration, like, we meet him. He's announced his candidacy. He's out on the trail. He's trying to set himself apart from all of the other people that are trying to win his party's nomination. And we hear him talking about all of the things that he stands for, all of his values, all of his beliefs, because he wants to set himself apart. And then there's this moment where he wins the nomination. And we hear him speak at his, at his uh, party's convention as candidate Bill. And for the next few, year, for the next few months now, he's going to be trying to tell you why you should vote for him. He's going to be out there trying to earn your vote because he wants to be your next president. So he's going to try and set himself out apart from whoever's running the show right now. And let's say Bill happens to win the election. Now he's president-elect, president-elect Bill. And he's not going to be silent until his inauguration. He's going to be telling you what his plan is for the next 100 days or his first 100 days in office. He's going to be setting you up for his presidential term. And then comes the inauguration. And he comes out and he takes the oath and he comes to the podium now for the first time as our president and he, he makes this grand speech and you've heard it so it, you know, it's all of these like, it's a grand rhetoric about drawing on the vision of the founding fathers and this is how we're going to move our country forward. Well in a lot of ways the Sermon on the Mount Matthew 5-7 through 7, is Jesus' inaugural address. So Matthew starts his gospel with a genealogy and he ties Jesus' life into the lives of all of these great people before him, especially David, wants to show you that Jesus is related to David and stands in that kingly line. And then we have things, the prophecies about his birth, and John the Baptist is going to come on the scene, and Jesus will be baptized, and he'll be taken out into the wilderness and tempted. Excuse me. And then as we get to chapter 4, he starts to call his disciples, and they're out in the countryside preaching the gospel of the kingdom and the crowds are coming to see him and the crowds are coming to listen to him and we were told that he goes up the mountainside and that his disciples come to him and he teaches them now we might expect that what he teaches them to be clear but it's often not he tells them that unless your righteousness exceeds the that of the pharisees you'll not see the kingdom of god and these are the same pharisees that he'll call hypocrites um, he says things, <clears throat> excuse me, like, <clears throat> be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He'll tell you that if, if your eye's causing you to sin, to cut it out of your head, 
Has anyone ever experienced a Christian who's done these things? What happened to your hand? Where's your hand? Oh, I cut it off. I was sinning with it, so I cut it off. Some very strange things, and I think the Beatitudes are also sometimes strange to us, too. It took me a long time to kind of wrap my head around it. And once I did, I think I really, I began to understand what Jesus is saying. Um, The first things that he teaches them are, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And blessed are those who are meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Have you ever thought about people in your world, people that we might describe as poor, as hungry, as brought low, as mourning, as people who are blessed? Another way to translate the Greek word that we read blessed is happy. Isn't it kind of ironic that Jesus says, happy are the ones who mourn? It seems sort of strange. But what I think Jesus is doing is he's telling his disciples, before you go out into the world... Before you take the gospel to the people who need to hear it, you need to change your glasses. Because Jesus was born into a time, Hebrew theology believed that if you want to know what God thinks of you, if you want to know what God thinks about the life you're living behind closed doors, ask yourself, what kind of car is parked in my driveway? How many bedrooms are under the roof of my house? Maybe even more importantly for them is if you want to know how your neighbor's living, check what kind of car's in their driveway. How's he feeling? Is he healthy? Do his children respect him? Is his wife hotter than mine? If if those things are true, then he's probably, you know, he's living a God-honoring life. The flip side of that is just as true also, though, because they would say, like, you know, the guy who's... um, standing on the corner begging for your change that has no, nothing to eat? Sinner. You know the guy who just found out that he has leukemia? Sinner. And this is, the, this is sort of the um, environment that Jesus was ministering in, that he grew up in. I mean, it's sort of like the idea of karma, isn't it? It's, I, maybe a better language would be called to be call it retributive justice, that you get what you give, or what you get. Um, excuse me, is it dry in here, or is it just me? <laughs> Thank you. I am pretty hot. Thank you for noticing. <laughs> Has anybody ever read the book of Job? Okay, so you know the, the whole thing in Job is that one day God's hanging out in his living room, knock on the door, Satan comes in and says, what's up, God? God says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? how righteous he is, how he loves me. This is a guy that makes sacrifices for his children just in case they might have missed something when they made their own sacrifices. And Satan says, of course he loves you. Look how easy he has it. He doesn't worry about what's for dinner tonight. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. So God says, okay, well, you know what? Go out and do your worst, and I guarantee you'll come back tomorrow, and he still will love me. So Satan goes out takes away his children, takes away his wealth, takes away the offshore accounts, takes it all away, and Job doesn't sin. So Satan goes back to God. God says, see, I was right, I told you. Satan says, yeah, but you let me, 
you didn't let me touch his health. If I could make him sick, it would be a different story. So he goes out again. We're told that Job is sitting in the, the dung pile, the ash heap. He's scraping his sores with a broken piece of pottery because that's how much agony he's in. His wife says, just curse God and die. What are you doing? And like a good man, Job looks at the woman and says, you're wrong. <laughs> that's for you. <laughs> he's sitting there he's so much pain that he's scraping himself with a broken piece of pottery and his friends come to, to mourn with him and they're sitting with him silent for seven days and finally when they first start to talk they say Job what did you do what did you do that was so bad that God would treat you like this well this is the environment that Jesus is teaching in and he could only he only had to look around himself the Pharisees were saying, you know, saying things like, you know, Jesus, there's a blind man standing over against the wall. Who sinned, him or his parents? We'll look at this passage a little bit later, but, you know, Jesus says, don't be like the people who stand in the temple courtyard and say, God, thank you that I'm not like them. This is the kind of environment that Jesus wants to turn on its head and say, these are the people that you need to go to. Because these are the ones that God has poured his blessing out on. Not because they have something, but because God is calling them to himself. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's a big question. Who are these meek people that Jesus is talking about? I think a lot of times we get this idea that, um, oh, well, Jesus was gentle. You know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. That we just need to, you know, go around and... Be gentle with people and tell them that God loves them. I don't get the vibe that this is necessarily something positive that Jesus is saying. He's not saying, blessed are the ones who humble themselves. But I think what he's getting at is, blessed are the ones who have been humbled by their circumstances, humbled by the people around them that have pushed them to the periphery of life. Um, it's this idea that he'll talk about, like when someone strikes your, te- your cheek, Present the other one to them also. The background for this beatitude is uh, Psalm 37.11. Could I ask a volunteer to look that up real quick and read it in a moment? Psalm 37.11. And when you get there, just if someone could raise their hand for me. Um, a lot of these beatitudes are tied to the promise that comes with it. So, blessed are the poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt, their inheritance the kingdom of God and what other what other spiritual blessing would you want if not the kingdom of God um, blessed who are those who mourn for they will be comforted and blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the inherit the earth Tony it's Psalm 37 11 yep. can you read it one more time Okay, thank you. I didn't catch the first part. But basically what Jesus is doing is he's taking this, this saying from Psalm 37. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the, the land, is the way my translation phrases it. But everybody knows that the land in the Old Testament was a big deal, right? This is the place that God created for Israel to inhabit, to experience the blessing of relationship with himself. 
Um, and it goes all the way back to Genesis 1. Genesis 1, we learn that God created everything out of nothing. And the next six days, he's going to take this thing that was formless and void, is going to shape it and create a, a special land for his chosen people. This isn't just New Jersey. This is the Garden of Eden. And this is where God will walk in. I said that because New Jersey is the armpit of America. Anybody ever been there? <laughs> Sorry if you're from there. But... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, this is not, this is the Garden of Eden. This is where God is going to walk with his people in the cool of the day. This is a big deal. The land for Israel is not only um, sort of a theological idea, but it's a physical place. The, this is where they equate being with God is in the land of Israel. And the land is a blessing because it's their place of communion with God. And I think what Jesus is doing is he's taking this idea of fellowship with God and he's dis, or unattaching it, detaching it from a physical place and he's making it more of a metaphorical thing. It's the idea of connection. It's the idea of relationship. <clears throat> it's the idea of this is where I'm going to meet you because you've been pushed out. When Jesus says, blessed are the meek, I think what he's getting at is this idea of people who are just completely disenfranchised. And I think that there's three things that make us disenfranchised. First of all, they're spiritually vagabonded. You know, you know everybody knows what a vagabond is. But they were treated as, they were looked at as nothing by the scribes, by the Pharisees, by the religious leaders. The people running the temple viewed these people as nothing more than sinners. They were spiritually outcast. There's no dignity for them. There's no honor for them. They've just been pushed out. They can't participate in the temple life. There's no relationship for God with these people. The second idea is that they're spatially dislocated. So this idea of we're part of Israel, so we're part of God's people. Uh, these are people who can't even enjoy that relationship because they can't participate in the life of Israel because they have been, and this is the third part, just ceremonially ostracized. You've probably read parts of the Bible where if you're not clean, if you're leprous, if you touch the dead body, you're considered not clean, you can't go to the temple. You have to sit outside the city for a few days. Spiritually, ceremonially unclean. And the irony of Jesus' day is that the people who were running the temple, the people who were ministering to these people who were supposed to be the least, the last, and the lost, the people that needed to be with God the most, these people were being pushed out and saying, you can't participate. You can't draw close to God because you're not clean. Well, because of the way that all of these people viewed the people that Jesus came to minister to, they're all pushed out. They're all marginalized. They're all set outside the temple. And Jesus wants to bring these very people back into fellowship with God. I think if we're going to draw like a modern par parallel, Pastor Jonathan was talking about the human sex slave market today. And I think these are the people that Jesus has in mind when he says, blessed are the meek. These are children who are ripped from their house, their family, their home, their life. They're taken to another country 
where they don't know the language, they don't know the places, they don't know the faces. And then they're sold off to be abused and neglected. And this is sort of like a... If you're looking for an example of what Jesus means when he says the meek, this is the people that he's talking about, completely disenfranchised, the people that were so so quick for us to just walk by and say, well, what did they do to deserve that? It must have been something pretty bad. What did they do to earn this life? And I'm just glad that I've not made that mistake. So when Jesus says, blessed are the meek, he wants us to stop looking at people who have been pushed to the periphery, marginalized from community, not allowed to participate, and start to see them through God's eyes. And the cool thing is, is that he not only tells us this, but he shows us how to do it. Because Jesus Christ became the disenfranchised for us. If you could flip over to Matthew 11. And we have this cool scene in Matthew 11. John the Baptist is in prison. He was out preaching the gospel of the kingdom or repentance kind of the strange guy that wore the camel hair tunic and the leather belt, ate locust and wild honey. But he's out, in the, he's out in the wilderness and he's proclaiming repentance. He's baptizing people into the kingdom of God. And he's sitting in this prison cell and he starts to think, I must have missed that memo. I, something, I, this isn't adding up. Like, why am I sitting in prison? So he sends his disciples out to find Jesus and he asks them, to find out if Jesus really is who he said he was. And Jesus answered them, this is verse 4 of Matthew 11, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. A lot of these quotes are from Isaiah. But it's amazing to me the way that Jesus answers John because he says, you want to know that I'm the Christ? The Beatitudes are being fulfilled. The poor are being fed, the blind, the outcast, all of these people, they're being called into my kingdom. And if you, if you want to know, like I have this kind of nerdy thing where if you're reading narrative literature, there's all of these little trail markers that are going to point us to different things. And Matthew puts in this huge trail marker because what does he say right after this? The blind see, the deaf hear, the poor preach to. He says another beatitude. Blessed are the ones who are not offended by me. And this points us right back to the beatitudes. So he's saying that all of these things are happening. All of these things are happening in my ministry. So don't worry that you're sitting in jail. It doesn't all make sense right now because all of these things are happening. And then, so his disciples walk away, and Jesus begins to teach the crowds concerning John. And then if you flip down to chapter, or excuse me, verse 20, I'm sorry, verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? 
It was like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating or drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. They say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Again, it's the same thing. Isn't it crazy that Jesus says in Matthew 5, blessed are the ones who mourn. And you want to know how you've missed the boat with Jesus because all these children came playing the flute, playing this funeral march, and you didn't mourn. How, how, how many times have we missed the boat thinking about how do I act like Jesus? How do I reach out to the people who have just been pushed out of life? See, and this part's sort of like the crazy thing to me because it wasn't until I started studying for this passage that it like really stuck out to me. But if you flip down a little further in Matthew 11 to verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am... Can somebody read the rest of that sentence for me? Verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle... Does anybody else have another translation? Humble. Humble. Does anyone have a Bible that says meek? Blessed are the meek. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That, I read that and I was like, that, I'm cra- like just, it makes me crazy. This is the same language that Jesus will say, in the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek. You want to know why God wants you to change your perspective? Because God changed his. He was sitting in heaven, and he set aside his glory. In Philippians 2, Paul tells us that, you know, Jesus was God himself. He put aside his glory to take on I mean, I look at myself in the mirror sometimes. I'm like, I don't understand why God would want to do that. <laughs> I mean, I've never been, you know, I would never be on, you know, whatever GQ magazine. But it's just, it's crazy. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, that's something that really, to wrap your head around that. Jesus Christ, God himself, traded that in to become a human being. He set aside his glory. He was spiritually vagabonded because he became man. He bore on his own shoulders the burden, the guilt, and the weight of our sin. In the moments right before he died, the sky went black. And he called out, Father, why have you forsaken me? He became that for us. But not only that, but think about what leaving heaven means. 
I mean, his living room is the throne room of God. His old raggedy lazy boy, it's the big throne that's right next to the other big throne that God Almighty sits on. And he walked away from that. Spatially dislocated himself so that he could come and be like us, be one of us. But more than that, and this is where I, I really admire Matthew's gospel because he, it's so clear for him that not only did Jesus set aside his glory and not only did he leave the glory of heaven, but he came and was absolutely and utterly rejected, just like the people that he was preaching to. I mean, the, the scribes and the elders, they're looking and they're trying to trap him to say some, the wrong thing so that they can arrest him on the spot, and it wasn't happening because they had already rejected him. Thankfully, they found one of Jesus' inner, inner group, one of the 12, who rejected him, betrayed him into the hands of the religious leaders. So they take him to Pilate, and Pilate says, I can't find anything wrong with him. He's done this. I don't know what you're saying, but I can't convict him because there's nothing to convict him by. Yet out of fear, he turns his back. Rome rejects him. He's on the cross, and all of these people that he had been with in the marketplace and in the temple, he'd seen these faces. They're all standing at the foot of the cross, laughing at him, mocking him. They've rejected him. Two of the centurions, or a group of the Roman soldiers, are casting lots for his garments because they've rejected him. And Matthew will tell us that both of the thieves on the cross reviled him in the same manner. Every element of people, every element of society that Jesus walked in rejected him. And all of this means that Jesus gets, he gets it because he became it. All of the people in our world that are, have been disenfranchised, pushed out of the center of life, Jesus says, I get it because that's exactly what I did for you. <clears throat> so it all comes back to looking at all of this from the perspective of three different relationships. And the first one is just to think about the people that inhabit your world. Because Matthew wants to make sure that every time we walk down the street or turn on the news, he wants us to make sure that the people who we see that are just broken, outcast, the people that we feel bad for. God says, don't look at them and allow your heart to break because they're nothing. Be grateful for them because they're the ones that bear God's blessing. Not because of their circumstances, but because God wants to chase them. And he wants to use you to chase them, to find them and to bring them home to reconnect them, to plug them back into life. <clears throat> and he's able to do that because he became that. Jesus left it all so that he could identify with them. 
so that there would be a point of contact with them, that he would relate to them. And, you know, after we do that, I think one of the most important things that we can do is to say, how do, how do I figure into all of this? How do I relate and connect to this message of the gospel? And I think there's two primary ways. Has anybody ever felt disconnected from God, even after you've started in your faith journey? I mean, I don't want to brag, but I've been walking with God for 33 years now, you know. But I have these moments where it's just, I, I'm, I remember hearing a song a long time ago, and she talks about how sometimes I feel like I'm as close as God's shadow. Other moments I feel like I'm looking at him from the bottom of the Grand Canyon, like I could not be further away from God. <clears throat> and I know sometimes those moments of disconnection from God, from community, from family, from friends, Sometimes they happen because of sin, because of bad choices that I've made. And sometimes they, they happen because of circumstances. My, my tragedy is the direct relationship of a bad choice that somebody else made. But it doesn't matter. Because the point of it all is that when, when we have those moments of disconnection... Jesus wants to, us to know more than he's come and he's, he's become us to save us. But if you could go back to Matthew 11, and I just want to touch on this idea that God invites us, Jesus invites us to take his yoke upon him. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Anybody know what a yoke is? So you have two oxen, you're plowing the field. You put this yoke, it's sort of like this odd wood-looking thing, but it's to pair them together. Because what would happen if you didn't pair the ox together, right? You'd be... <laughs> yeah, exactly. You'd be, they'd be to the end of the, the row, and the, the ox on the right would say, turn right on Alessandro. <laughs> and the one on the left would say, no, no, we're going to turn left. And then she'll say, well, why do you never listen when I tell you I used to live here? I drive this road all the time. And the one on the, in the driver's seat will say, no, that, this doesn't look right to me. The point is, is that you yoke them together so that the farmer who's driving the plow can get them to go where he wants to go. <laughs> and it's not so... It's, it, this is much better than that because it's, the farmer now comes alongside of you and says, I'll yoke you. I'll yoke up with you. I, we don't need to get into this, but there, this saying was kind of um, before Jesus showed up on the earth, there was a, a sage who was preaching, a rabbi that was using this metaphor to talk about how Wisdom, if you've ever read Proverbs 9, wisdom is said to be out in the street, and she's saying, come in, come to my feast. Let me teach you. This guy was teaching that wisdom, wisdom's call is like one who wants to yoke with us, to know how to live a life that's pleasing to God and successful before God. And in these moments that we just feel lost and disconnected, when it seems like nobody is standing with us, nobody's standing around us, or if we're like Job and all of our friends are saying, 
Scott, what did you do that was so bad? All we need to look to do is look right next to us, and there's Jesus himself with a yoke. Let me come alongside of you. Let me help you bear this burden. Let me teach you the things that you need to know to live a life that is pleasing to God, that will bring justice into someone else's life. Let me help you get back on track. But I think more important than that is what Jesus wants us to know is that it's really time for us to start to stop talking about the they, all of those people out in our world who have been disenfranchised, who are disconnected, who have been left out in the cold, and start talking about the we. Before we started on this journey with, with God in this faith relationship with Christ, the heart of the matter is that the we and the they, there's no difference. And the only thing that separates us now is a cross and a yoke. It's time we need to change our glasses, have these moments where we realize the people that God wants us to minister to are not the people who it's easy for us to talk to always. To stop seeing those people that are standing outside of God and, and wonder what it is that they must have done to earn this life and say, I was really no different from them before Christ called me. And the only difference is now we know the significance of, significance of the cross and it's time to share that with the people who maybe it's not so easy to talk to, just easy to walk straight past. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your heart. I'm just so blown away by the way that you love us and how easy it is to think, okay, well, you know what? Now that I'm part of the one percenters, I don't need to worry about the other 99. We just ask that you would burden us with the truths of your gospel to take the gospel to the people who need to hear it. The people who our world rejects are the people that you have pronounced your blessing on. And we just ask that you would help us to open our eyes to them. And these moments that we feel like we cannot be further away from you, Lord, help remind us that that's exactly what you've done for us. You want to come beside us. You want to yoke with us. You want to teach us how to live a life that is honoring to you and honoring to others. And we just ask, Lord, that you would guide us through this week to start the process of thinking about the way that I look at my world and ask that you would help us to see it through your eyes. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For more information, visit Relevant316.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We hope you have a wonderful day and God bless.